So have you looked at the new DeLorean? Because, side question, did you know that there's a new DeLorean? Yes and no. <laughs> In opposite order. <laughs> right. Yes, I'm aware that it exists. No, I haven't looked into it because, <sighs> look, I'm a child of the 80s. I get it, but I'm just not that nostalgic for the DeLorean. There was a guy around the corner from us growing up who had a DeLorean, and it was not as impressive in person. They're kind of small. Kind of small. The kind engine of... is notoriously terrible on the old ones. Yes. So I, I am not going to buy something purely out of nostalgia. But this one's electric. Boogie, I am not going... Woogie. Woogie. You have me there. <laughs> Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I have a family unit and everything. Witness my progeny manifest. Rosie, Robbie, and Gort. They love punctuality and ball bearings. It is all ball bearings these days. They sure are real. There's a pet cat as well, who is not a sentient paper shredder. It does love shredding things, though. With me is Chris, who's also here. I mean, the thing about cats is, aren't they all sentient paper shredders? <laughs> of varying degrees, yes. And what's interesting is their definition of paper is very loose. It Does it shred? Ergo, it is paper. <laughs> Ipso facto QED. <laughs> I rest my case. Oh, that's... Having a cat taught me that there is a proper way to put the toilet paper roll on, and it's the way that makes it harder for them to shred the whole roll. I mean, they'll still do it, but this way is harder. <laughs> right. And what, what is our lives other than making things harder for cats? Wow. That might be the most <laughs> profound thing you've ever said. We should just stop now. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but we won't. Let's instead talk about some tech garbage. Let's do that. All right. Let's talk about everybody's favorite part of the internet, browsers and search engines. Wow, that's not what I was thinking. <laughs> well, the search engines get you to your favorite part, weirdo. I know, you spend all your time on Bing. I know all about it. It's Listen, weird. Everybody needs to know how to smoke kippers. And if I don't go to Bing, how am I going to find that out? It's just, I just, my brain is overwhelmed with euphemisms. I can't continue <laughs> this bit. So anyway, here's the thing. Everybody uses a browser to use the internet. Oui. And in order to find things on the internet, mm. everybody has to search for them. Mostly. So, these things have become so commonplace that, first of all, Googling is a verb, not the one that you normally look up. They really, I mean, there's a case to be made that the intelligent and successful search engine is the underpinning of the internet. I, there's definitely a compelling case to be made for that. That was kind of what revolutionized things. And there was the whole like search wars right. that was launched and then Google pretty much won it. So just 90 seconds of history. When the internet started, there were like three sites on it. And then there was like 30. Well, I mean, we and also have to make like the distinction because there was the internet and the World Wide Web, which right. were at a time were two separate things. And somebody around that time decided, you know what? We need to keep track of all these things. So they started doing it by hand. <laughs> oh, yeah. In a file. 
that was online, much akin to a directory, like a phone book or something. And that directory was passed around and updated between the six people that were using the internet at the time. By hand. <laughs> By hand, yes. And this happened and continued for a shockingly long time. Mm -hmm. But eventually, actually automating this type of stuff had to happen. Uh-huh. Side point, did you know that the Google search crawler, the internal name for it is the Googlebot? I didn't. It's kind of adorable. I also hate it. My response and sentiments, exactly. All right. Anyway, you get to the point where a search engine is essential because there are too many sites to check by hand. Fun fact, Yahoo was not crawling the internet per se, but they were trying to build a directory in the same model as the original text file. Yes. And that did not scale. No. Google took a completely different approach to site discovery, and that is part of why they are so successful. Yes, and another thing that makes them so successful, and we'll get to it in depth towards the end of this little thing, is it turns out saving information about A, previous searches, and B, previous searches made by a specific person means that the results you get back are actually better. Mm. Also, ads, 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 ads. Yes. Ads. Well, Sorry. that came in later, but you are correct, correct, <laughs> correct, 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 correct. Thank you. So, this became ads, this became stealing all your personal identifiable information, led to a backlash. We started building privacy stuff. Mm -hmm. Our little favorite search engine that could, DuckDuckGo, a.k.a. Paoli's most aquatic private search engine company, found themselves in a spot of trouble along these lines. Indeed. For what they did, to begin with, remember, was put privacy, security, back into the search engine game. Mm -hmm. They, of course, wanted to expand their empire and put out a browser app. Because everybody needs an app. Who are you if you don't have an app? I have like six apps right now. I mean, I like apps. More of a tapas person, really, but apps are good. Well, I mean, you know, tapas, bet you can't eat just one, but why in the world would you? Yeah, I know. So, DuckDuckGo's app tries to follow in the tracks of the company's gigantic privacy reputation. Right. Including stopping third-party trackers, which is good. Generally, yes. Unless, it seems, for this particular use case, if those trackers come from Microsoft. So that's, we're leaning bad. Not, not great. A security researcher was monitoring the browser, which only came out officially last December, so it's relatively new. Right. This security researcher noticed an unexpected phenomenon. Data was going to Microsoft, even if the browser wasn't pointed at a Microsoft website. Mm. So that's bad. That means that DuckDuckGo, purveyors of this browser that was built around mocking Chrome for harvesting your data, <laughs> appeared to be working hand-in-hand -hand with Microsoft to harvest your data. The CEO of DuckDuckGo insists that this is related to a, quote, search syndication agreement that DuckDuckGo, and I'm going to start calling it DDG because that's just a lot of syllables. Fair enough. A search syndication agreement DDG made with Microsoft. Yeah, it's way easier. It's also the same number of syllables. Yeah, but they're easier syllables. Okay. And it does not apply to the DDG search engine itself. So important distinction. App, Microsoft, bad. Search engine, still, as far as we know, fine. Okay. All right. So, according to the company, quote, 
This is just about non-DuckDuckGo and non-Microsoft sites in our browsers where our search syndication agreement currently prevents us from stopping Microsoft-owned scripts from loading, though we can still apply our browser's protections post-load, like third-party cookie blocking and the others mentioned above, and we do, unquote. All right. So I don't know if that makes me feel better. Oh, wait, no, I do know. It doesn't. Oh. So basically what they're saying is... We're going to block everything except Microsoft. Yes. And that's how they did it, because we didn't find out until it was uncovered by a security researcher named Zach Edwards. This has led to a lot of hypocrisy-style backlash aimed directly at DDG, which, of course, made their name shaming Google's privacy-violating policies. <laughs> And of course, and this is true on iOS, I meant to check this on Android, but I don't have an inferior cell phone, so I couldn't. You can't install a plugin to block this action. So while on the desktop, you might have some mechanisms you can do, on iOS, you can install a plugin into the DDG app. So basically what you're saying is, I'm going to keep my information private, except for Microsoft, on this app. Right. But of course, that's assuming you're using that app. And not using Firefox as the browser on your phone. Correct. Now, this might be petty of me, but I am so annoyed that the CEO decided to use the word just. <laughs> because it really minimizes what they're, what they're doing. Right. Right? You, DDG, the privacy company du jour, are allowing Microsoft to just run scripts and set up trackers wholesale in a way that your users can't opt out of if you're browsing the web on your phone, which is what everybody does anymore. This makes me sad. Oh, we don't want Chris sad. So the question has to be, why in the world did this happen? Money? There's the one. Oh, good. Got we it found it, one. everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have not actually commented on this part as to why this contract exists. But I think you're absolutely right. First of all, we know that DuckDuckGo primarily uses Bing as their backend data gathering engine for their search results. This is fine. Microsoft was able to use that as like advertising. Hey, look, they're using our search engine except for instead of Google. Right. So then when DuckDuckGo decided, let's do this app, Microsoft realized, hey, wait a minute. We've got this little thing called leverage. Oh. So I imagine it was a lot like Darth Vader negotiating with Lando Calrissian. Remember that? I, it from, was the, from the Star War? Not so much negotiation, if I'm recalling correctly. Right. The second that DDG decided an app was going to be involved, Microsoft goes all dark side and alters the deal. And pray do they do not alter it further. <laughs> so this has led a lot of people to question the viability of this company in specific, and any company overall that wants to, one, exist on the internet, two, be ad-supported, grr, three, respect privacy with no exceptions, and four, be honest about it. True. You would hope that those would be attainable goals. This exercise that DDG has gone through leads us to believe, hmm, maybe it isn't. Well, the biggest problem in the things that you enumerated there is that there is a natural conflict between two and three because those who are looking to buy ads 
want the best possible information. Because they don't want just ad space. Right. They're not looking to take out ad space in a classified in a newspaper. The whole explosion of ads with the internet was the fact that you could get demographic information about not just these general cohorts of who was consuming the newspaper. Like you might know that if I put it in the New York Times, I'm going to generally get this kind of person. Or if I put it in Time Magazine, I'm going to get this other general profile of person. Now they were able to target things with almost laser accuracy. Right. And because of that, that expectation is going to continue into the future. Marketing companies are not going to accept the fact that DuckDuckGo is not offering that level of introspection into who's using the search engine. Introspection. Yes. Oh my God, that makes it sound almost positive. Doesn't it though? But it's not. No, no. I mean, the phrase, the shorthand phrase is targeted ads. Yes. And if that sounds like you're the victim of a military operation, I think that's accurate too. I, yes, it might be. <laughs> we might be getting a little overzealous with terminology, but... So the revolution begins at three... Wait. Hi, comrade. <laughs> so, and what's funny is, timing-wise, this isn't great for privacy-based browsers in general. Mm. Because there's another little browser you might have heard of in terms of anti-privacy stealing, anti-targeted ads, etc., called Brave. Yeah, we've covered Brave in the past. I don't know if we did it on Chaos Lever. <laughs> they got mentioned at least. At least. If you, know, if you are a, a true buffer overflow head, you know all about Brave. So Brave this week is taking some shrapnel about one of their business practices. Although this one is more around um, just controversial business model and shady practices around attracting new customers. Okay. Ordinarily shorthanded as marketing. <laughs> so let's talk about Brave's magnificent cell phone for just a second. Now, Brave also exists as a company specifically built to fight this trend of personally identifiable information being a kind of currency for advertisers. Mm -hmm. A big difference between them and DDG is that Brave has always been about the browser. And a kind of crypto way of paying websites that you like as the end user and choose to support. Contentious as that part is, we can ignore that for now. We don't have unlimited time. Mm -hmm. This kerfuffle is about a marketing campaign. So, a few months ago, they decided to embark on what became a very controversial direct mail marketing push. In short, they worked with a direct mailing company to send a mailer to, quote, residents living in certain cities. Brave designed a postcard that was sent third-class mail with doom and gloom aesthetic and phrases on it like, quote, I like being tracked online, said no one ever, as well as, quote, tired of being watched online. And then an appeal, and of course, a QR code, because why wouldn't there be a QR code? Why wouldn't? Yeah, absolutely. To switch to using Brave browser. Hmm. Incidentally, as I looked into this, uh, the who, in terms of the direct mailing company, was later clarified. The mail was delivered by the EDDM service of the U.S. Postal Service. So, mm -hmm. in short, the Postal Service has an option to send them files, point it at a 
zip code of uh-huh. your choosing, yes. and they will print and mail your third-class spam. Yes. I had no idea that this was a service that the USPS provided, but here we are. That is, again, a much larger topic that we don't have time to get into right now, but it is a rich and complex topic about how the post office can possibly fund itself right? since we treat it like a company as opposed to a public service. Well, yeah. That... But anyway, <clears throat> do not have time for this. <laughs> so anyway, reactions to this campaign were swift and not super positive for reasons that we will touch upon ever so lightly. To be clear, this was begun three months ago, and it is still happening, and their tone-deaf campaign and their response to it is continually being roasted on Twitter, which really is, I think, I've thought about this, and this might be the best thing about Twitter, is when companies get roasted. (laughs) Well, the uh, pantheon of things to choose from that are positive about Twitter is very small. Fair. So, yes, I think that that (laughs) climbs to the number two or three spot. So Brave went to pains to say, we don't have your PII. It's the third party company that has your PII, which interesting strategy. That's not better. So what they're saying is we won't be abusing your publicly available PII, but we're totally fine with paying a third party to do it for us. Uh, Internet privacy aficionados were unsurprisingly not swayed by this argument. No, and not to go off on another tangent, but I mean, the direct mail makes uh, and ads make up the bulk of what is actually sent through the USPS. Yeah, by an enormous amount. Enormous amount. Uh, Possibly preposterous would be a good word for it contributing to what I'm sure is a ridiculous amount of waste. Oh, because when you get third-class mail, what you have to do is take it out of the mailbox, walk it to the trash, and drop it immediately in. And hopefully it's a recycling bin, but even then, who knows if it's actually getting recycled. Right, especially if it's one of these laminated postcards. Which you can't recycle. Right! Hooray! So really doing a service to everyone, Brave. Good job. So they've kept up with this promotion, and I'm guessing one of the main reasons for this is that they probably paid for it in full, and doing some research, they probably paid around 10 to 15 cents per mailer. Now, considering that they were celebrating having 50 million active users, which also, Mm -hmm. how do you know how many active users you have? What's that about? Hmm. 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 So now they're trying to spin the controversy into an any press is good press type of situation, which might actually work. Who the heck knows? (laughs) Um, And they actually do have employees on Twitter, on Reddit, on all the social medias trying to limit the damage. Mm -hmm. So, for example, an official Brave employee had this stance on the the effort. Quote, the main issue, in my sincere opinion, is optics. This is perceived to be an instance of Brave having data about users when it is anything but. We used a mailer to deliver our artwork to residents in certain cities. We received no data mailer printed names which we don't like which is an interesting thing because they could have sent them out as current resident Mm -hmm. instead they came out as ned bellavance living at deleted (laughs) which freaks people out especially people that might have just downloaded brave right because i just downloaded brave installed it and then i suddenly get a postcard 
That that seems ominous. And if you think about the numbers that we're talking about, if you've done this in highly populated areas, Brave is a growing product. Mm -hmm. You claim 50 million active users. This is going to happen. And the second that it happens, what's going to happen next is what happened. Backlash and outrage on Twitter. Right. And even though, if you think about it, they didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Except for the mass mailing campaign. Well, I mean, I'm against the mass mailing campaign because I'm against those in general, just on principle. Sure. But in terms of adhering to the idea that they're not collecting your data and using it, they haven't broken with that. Correct. So what this is, is a tremendous failure of marketing and public perception. And if you're trying to build out and grow your audience to use a more privacy-focused browser, which I think is a net good. You probably shouldn't do a campaign that makes it look like you're stalking your users. That's one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was brave. Okay. That, that was an oopsie. We'll keep an eye on that. But these two things coming you know, right on the heels of one another is bad timing. And, you know, it is definitely making people wonder, again, why this DDG Microsoft contract uh, kind of thing has to happen. The resulting information sharing, and we're Mm going to put that in hefty air quotes. (laughs) The whole point of privacy being anonymous searching and not being stalked by unscrupulous advertisers or, you know, advertisers. Mm -hmm. One thing to remember, and this is what we touched on at the top. If you're using a search engine, you're probably still, in a way, trackable around the internet. And people have to remember and understand this. It's called browser fingerprinting. And what happens is, any website you go to, you don't just get information from that website. Mm -hmm. You are giving that website information about yourself. Indeed, yes. And some of them are kind of obvious. Some of them are just like, what's the size of your screen? So that the the web server can know how big the graphics should be, et cetera, make it fit appropriately because it's mm-hmm. going to look different on you know a 4K monitor versus the CRT because everybody still has those, right? I mean, I do. But there is a ton of other information that goes over the wire. It talks about your browser down to the micro versioning. Mm-hmm. Since these things are continually released, it's not just you know Chrome version ninety nine. It's Chrome version 99.103.16224, whereas I have 103.16225. Boom, difference. Yes. But it also sends things like, are you running Mac? Are you running Windows? Are you running Linux? Difference. What version? Windows Mm -hmm. 10? Windows 11? Windows XP? Windows ME? I wouldn't dare. (laughs) Difference. And the list of these things is actually pretty big. The EFF has a good site that you can see this, because this is just happens. Um, so you can check what browser fingerprint you're giving and test it for yourself. And it's terrifying. <laughs> so you've got this fingerprint that's repeatable across websites. And now we have to remember big data, mm-hmm. our best friend. And we were just out to lunch last week with big data. We we were? Yeah, and talk about ordering apps. <laughs> big data, big appetite. Oh, I get it. You did a word-based joke. I tried. So, 
one piece of personally identifiable information combined with that fingerprint, boom, you're trackable. Why are you trackable? Because that fingerprint is stored in hundreds, if not millions of different places on the internet. They build the equivalent of a rainbow table. They can look this stuff up and say, oh, there's Ned. He's on Bing again, looking for things nefarious. Smoked salmon recipe, obviously. <laughs> Another uncomfortable euphemism. <laughs> so, you know, you can see why this tracking, and I'm really, really grazing over the top of it, because, again, time-based concerns. This type of thing would make people uncomfortable, which is why they would lean toward DDG and their like in the first place. Well, now, all of a sudden, that goes out the window. What is an enterprising privacy purveyor of the internet to do? I mean, one of the other criteria that you brought up in your one, two, three, four was the idea that it is ad supported. Huh? There is the potential option to build a business that is not ad supported. Correct. The biggest problem is searches are expensive. It requires computation, and it requires a lot of data to do well. Mm -hmm. Google does not have a 75% market share for nothing. No. They are legitimately the best search engine in the world. So it stinks that they are, um, well, they used to be don't be evil. And then they changed that. Then they decided do be evil. More of an active role. Yeah. Over the time that they've existed, they have indexed, quote, hundreds of billions of web pages, and their search index is, quote, well over 100 million gigabytes in size. Let's see, the gigabyte, terabyte, petabyte, exabyte? I think we're in exabyte territory. It's got to be, right? Yeah. It's a lot of bytes. It's not a Google of bytes, ironically enough, but we're getting there. Right. And if you imagine the size and scope of the compute and storage they need to run all of that is not exactly cheap. Right. So even though non-Google options are what privacy-minded people want, the functionality, and as especially if you're looking for something specific and very technical, you're going to fall back to searching Google eventually. Even DuckDuckGo users have to. I have several times. And I'm sad every time. <laughs> but you're right. Non-Google options are coming into some type of focus. One, along the lines of what you talked about, is in, it's not even beta. I would say it's in alpha. K-A-G-I.com. I assume that's Kagi. So one thing I didn't do was look up how to pronounce any of these companies' names. Okay. I thought it would be more fun that way. I am enjoying it. But we could come up with some alternate. Alternate. Oh. Kagai. <laughs> Hey guy. So they talked specifically about the fact that this stuff is not cheap. Mm -hmm. And the number that they came up with as a, a startup in this space is that it costs them about a dollar per 80 user searches. Okay. So think about that and then think about it at the scale of like a DuckDuckGo. Mm -hmm. Which even though they're passing things through, the pricing is going to be around there, you would assume. Hence why they have to have deals with a Microsoft in the first place. Right. So, Kagi, or Kagai. KG. Ooh, KG. I like, I like that. Let's go, let's with, that go with that one. Okay, all right. Uh, hoping to solve this through a radical concept, a monthly fee. 
Now, this is interesting because it actually compared and contrasts it with what Apple does, especially lately. Apple's new stance is privacy is great. We're still going to take all your information, but we're only going to use it to make your experience using our products better. You pay extra for it, but your information never leaves the Apple wall garden. For right. a lot of people, that's okay. That's an acceptable trade-off. This might be the same. Could be. Because like I said, all of that information about your habits and your use cases, your previous searches, makes the search engine results better. So there could be ways to do this through like some kind of a crazy double-blind machine uh, learning type of thing. Right. Or they could just say, we're going to keep your information, but we're only going to use it to make your results better. And in, ret in return, you're going to give us your American Express card and look away. <laughs> in horror. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a legitimate option. I'm Absolutely. curious to see what their results are. I am on their mailing list. I have not gotten access to the product yet. In the same way that I have said before that if Facebook had a paid version that filtered out all of the crap, I would... I might potentially sign up for it. Right. Well, and just another aside of the aside, around the aside, beside the other side. Um, mm. That happened. They were, they asked Zuckerberg directly in like 2015, 16, at the point at or around when it went IP, IPO, what uh, are you going to charge a monthly fee? You know, and his answer was basically, well, we're not going to do that. And the reason for that is that we have all this data and we don't know how much it's worth yet. So we might accidentally rip ourselves off by having a subscription model. And he was right. <laughs> and now we're all sad again. It's more of a constant state of affairs, but <laughs> moving on. So another option, if you're of the more technical bent, is actually to run a search engine of your own. Now, you might be saying to yourself, self, we just talked about 100 trillion quadrillion exabytes. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, is this going to run on my Raspberry Pi in the basement? Because that's all I got. Strangely, it might. Oh. There's bizarre. another company that I don't know how to pronounce. It's S-E-A-R-X. Sears X. Sears X. Perfect. Um, basically, you install... Something, it could be as small as a Docker container or a full service that has a lot of data sources to pull from. Mm. So you're doing kind of a meta search, which is not unlike how DuckDuckGo works, but they do it at scale. So you have this open source product, you run it on your own. It's got these different sources that you can get to through some type of mechanism of your own devising. Some anonymizing mediary? As like a for example. Ah, so the thing that's interesting is you can pull from a whole bunch of different places. You could have it pulling data from Google. You could have it pulling from Bing. You could have it pull from Yahoo. <laughs> God, I couldn't get through that without <laughs> You laughing. tried. Oh, I'm so close. <laughs> the downside, though, the results are still not going to be as good as Google's. At this point, they're just not. Right. But if you're specifically focused on privacy, they might be good enough. You might have to scroll through five pages instead of getting it in your top 10 results. Mm -hmm. But some people might say, so be it. So, so be it. So be it. You know, and actually, this is a real question, because you could simply run a containerized instance that only has a, a browser running in it that has precisely been firewalled off in your environment, 
VPNs out the wazoo, connecting to Google so you can do Google searches without Google getting meaningful data. Yeah. But that's a lot of work too. <laughs> what you could do as an alternative, and this is something you could charge for, and this is our business idea, don't steal a TM. Uh, <laughs> you could potentially spin up really short-lived containers on a cloud service and have those containers do the query for you with very nicely calibrated user agent strings. Hmm. Pass though that information down to you and you pay for the cost of running that container. And assuming that it is suitably short-lived and you're on a free tier on a public cloud provider, until you hit a certain threshold of searches, you might not even have to pay for it. Functional, mm -hmm. quasi-elegant, a lot of things to keep track of. Right, but you would have software that does that for you. Right. And that seems to be the trade-off. Mm -hmm. If you want this kind of level of privacy... You have to pay for you it. You have to pay for it in one way or another. Or in some cases, both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> one way and the other. Because ultimately, as the old saying goes, Chris... If you aren't paying for the product... You are the product. Mic drop. All right. Lightning round? Lightning round. Can you actually, like, own stuff, man? Whoa. What might seem like an esoteric question actually has some gravitas in our modern world where just because you buy something, you know, like a smartphone, let's say, just random example, doesn't mean you entirely own that thing. You might have the physical device, but what about the components inside? Are you free to alter or repair the device without risking the wrath of major tech companies? And should those self-same companies provide you with information on how to fix that device without you having to hand it over to an official repair shop that is likely to charge a tremendous markup for its services? Apple seems very seen right now. The state of New York sure thinks so, and they have passed a bill to enforce the right to repair, currently waiting for signature from the acting governor. The text of the bill says, quote, requires OEMs to make available for purposes of diagnosis, maintenance, or repair to any independent repair provider or to the owner of digital electronic equipment manufactured by or on the behalf of or sold by the OEM on fair and reasonable terms, documentation, parts, and tools inclusive of any updates to information, end quote. <sighs> I'm scared. So let's try to parse through all the legal gobbledygook. The bill essentially means that individuals and third-party repair shops will be able to get the documentation, software, and parts needed to repair devices. And the OEMs, that's original equipment manufacturers, can't force you to go to their special shop with high-ordained priests that know the sacred rituals to replace an iPhone screen. So many candles. So much goat blood. While this is certainly a step in the right direction for consumers, the bill makes exceptions for medical devices, home appliances, and agricultural equipment. So, John Deere, you're off the hook. For, for now. now. As someone who's been known to repair a thing or two, the lack of good documentation and software is a huge pain, and I'm excited to see similar bills make their way across the country. 
Seth Green can't make a show because he thinks his stolen NFT is that important. Okay, deep breaths, everybody. Words cannot describe the creeping despair I felt when reading about this development. Just, like, things aren't great in the, in the world. And all I think we really want, you know, as, like, people is a little hope. A, a scrap, a shred. That things can get better. And then, pouting his way across Hacker News and ours, comes Seth Green, complaining up and down, oh, also Twitter, that he can't make a TV show because an NFT got stolen. Oh, boy. To be sure, I'm not condoning theft. Seth Green was the victim of a phishing scam, one that, given his high profile and seeming tech savviness, he at least knows some words, was probably an extremely sophisticated and specific effort. Then again, he's also a crypto bro, so who the hell knows? Anyway, stealing? Bad. Making fun of NFT stupidity? Good. And fun. And fun. Green was going to make a whole show around this idiotic bored ape character. I think it was called Fred. I honestly don't remember. Who cares? Because it's easier to sulk about it on Twitter than cancel the whole project than it is to just, oh, I don't know, draw a different monkey? <laughs> Give him a yellow hat. Who cares? Stop In it. Indeed. Green seems to think that he will be able to sue to get back his NFT, which, since it was purchased legally, is absolutely not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And, again, none of this would have happened if he had just made his dumb show and ignored the NFT scam completely. There is absolutely no reason he needed to do things this way, unless, of course, the show was weak and the NFT angle was just an attempt to shoehorn another audience in by appearing hip and with it to the Ponzi scheme crowd. But surely, no one would attempt to con a mass audience like that. Not with crypto! Oh. Lots of layoffs with more on the way. I said that happy, but I am not. May was especially unkind to tech sector jobs, with an estimated 16,000 in layoffs. And June, it's not looking any better. Tesla has announced that they will be laying off 10% of their salaried employees through a tweet, no less. Good job there, tweet guy. Coinbase is continuing their hiring freeze and rescinding previously accepted offers. And a host of other companies like IRL, Policy Genius, and Gemini are all laying off staff as well. What are we to make of all this, and what does it mean for the tech worker today? If we're being honest here, and since we have zero sponsors, there's no reason not to be, VC-backed companies are short-sighted, unprofitable messes who make bad decisions that will haunt them later. Truth. Okay. Publicly traded companies are only slightly better. But that's a bar so low, it might as well be embedded six feet down into bedrock for everyone to casually stroll over on their way to the unemployment line. Most of these layoffs are a direct result of the economy cooling down, rising inflation, and a desperate need of companies to cut costs while still showing growth and profitability, or at least a path to profitability. After all, in this era of late-stage capitalism, if you're not growing 20% every year, you might as well not exist. And firing staff or putting in a hiring freeze is a quick and easy way to cut costs without impacting 
short-term income. What about long-term? Fuck it, YOLO! Am I right? Yay! Yay. <sighs> to those impacted by the layoffs or the rug pull of job, job offers, screw you Coinbase and your lack of commitment, our hearts go out to you. My DMs are open, and I know some people or can offer distant emotional support. Because every time I try to get close to you, you push me away, Carolyn. Push me. I mean, uh, uh, anonymous person listening to this podcast. So is the support, like, distant? Or are you just distantly offering support? No, no I'm just emotionally distant. Right. Dead inside. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Microsoft continues innovating. By renaming a bunch of stuff and jamming it in a folder. Woo! Microsoft Entra. It sounds like a competitor to Amazon Key. Or maybe a medical robot designed to aid in painless injections. Or maybe some of the weird shit that Ned bings. Who knows? What it actually is, is an Azure dashboard and product family focused on identity and access solutions. No new products, per se, so far, just a couple rebrandings. In short, Azure AD, part of the Entra family. Sure. 2021 purchase a CIEM, that's Cloud Infrastructure Entitlement Management, not SIEM, which means something else. <laughs> anyway, it's now called Entra Permissions Management. And finally... Azure AD Verifiable Credentials is now called Microsoft Entra Verified AD. There's, of course, a dashboard for this new family of products, which so far is a little sparse. But the gang's all here. Mm -hmm. No comment from Microsoft on why Azure AD didn't get the Entra AD rebound, although suspicions are floating. <laughs> People have actually heard of it. No comment from us on what Cloud Knox or Verifiable ID actually do, because, you, I mean, <laughs> if you don't know, I'm certainly not going to tell you. The uh, Microsoft Verifiable ID project is actually kind of interesting, and maybe that's a topic for a future. No, yes. I mean, I totally know, but we'll, we'll tell the audience. Okay, oh, I gotcha, okay. <clears throat> Cloud NativeCon and KubeCon EU Highlights. Cloud NativeCon KubeCon in Barcelona wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I would finally check out some of the sessions now that they are all available online on the official CNCF YouTube channel. Sysdig has compiled a great list that focuses on security at all the layers of the stack. One of the ways you can tell a project is reaching maturity is that all the exciting stuff is now happening with security. That means the underlying project is mostly stable, and now we need to focus on things like user experience, operator experience, and yes, nailing down security. Definitely check out the list we've linked in the show notes for an enhanced viewing experience, like with video and stuff. Beyond security, among the big announcements during the keynote, we have the new Prometheus certification exam and a network function certificate for CSPs. That's not an exam, that's a certification program. And Boeing has joined as a platinum partner for the CNCF, which I guess is good? CNCF is flying high. There I'll it is. be quiet. <laughs> Maybe Kates can make their next plane stay in the sky. Ooh. Too soon? Too soon. Okay. 
Another big trend was the discussion about GitOps and CI/CD with its own separate conference day as well as the related technologies like Flux and the Weaveworks suite of tools. CI/CD continues to evolve with Argo being a big focus and the draft to spec that was actually announced at MS Build. Check out the GitOps Day sessions and see for yourself. 2022 marks the seventh year for the conference, and things have not slowed down in terms of attendance, sponsors, or projects. There were 7,000 people in attendance, like actually there, physically there, which sold out the conference. That's a super crowded living room. Indeed. The original conference had 700 people. While Kate's itself has become somewhat boring, the ecosystem around it continues to expand. You know, in a way, it kind of reminds me of VMware in its heyday, which I hope is not an indication of imminent stagnation, though the open source nature of the software leaves me somewhat optimistic. I mean, I would say you probably have like 15 solid years. It's not imminent. It's more inevitable, but we've got some time. I'll, tr- I'll trade imminent for inevitable. Google brings us right back to Hangouts by merging Meet and Duo into just meat. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. <clears throat> a reading from the 13th book of Google can't do anything except for search correctly, nor shall they ever. <laughs> Chapter 37. There was a VOIP product called Hangouts, and it was good. Okay, okay, saith the Lord, it was fine. It hath been decreed as such, get off our backeth about it. Anyway, Steve Google, in his wisdom, saw that Hangouts was fine and decided to sever it in twain. There shall not be one, but two, he said. With a swing of his marketing department, Meet and Duo were born, and the masses were perturbed, for Hangouts still remained. Thus it would remain, said Steve, bored with his creations. Chapter 38 Displeased again with the schism and seeing no financial boon, Steve decreed, in the fifth month of the 22nd year of the 20th century, that meet and duo shall once again be one. Meet it shall be, Steve declared, as duo was already a different product people had kind of heard of. (laughs) And besides, he was hungry. And thus it was. Meet it ever was. And meet It ever shall be, Steve said, retiring. And the masses were perturbed, for hangouts still remained. Chapter 39. (laughs) And what, oh great Steve, what was the deal with Allo? Cried the masses. Shut up, rejoined Steve. I appreciate that Steve is British, (laughs) for reasons that are completely incomprehensible. (laughs) hey thanks for listening or something i guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end so congratulations to you friend you accomplished something today take a moment really marinate in it this is your time this is you breathing these are your servos relaxing as you power down to l2 one zero 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 one 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 zero one zero one 
You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't, lest the dark void capture and consume you over a period of million years. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I got real light down at the end, didn't I?